your Bible, if you will, turn with me to for, or Revelation chapter 1, and uh, we're going to continue on in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation that we began a, a few weeks ago. Uh, great to see everyone this morning, and um, uh, I thought today was the first of fall, but I guess, is it tomorrow? Is that what somebody was saying when I was in the baptistry? Um, but I don't know about you, but I, I've enjoyed the last few days, the cooler temperatures and low humidity. There's no time like the season of fall, in my opinion. I just absolutely love everything about it and uh, excited to, uh, to begin this new season. And it's amazing to think about what's right around the corner. You've got uh, Halloween and, for us, Fall Festival and uh, th- those things that will be taking place in October, ministries, opportunities that we have, and then Thanksgiving and then Christmas season will be here before we know it. I want to share just a couple uh, ministry things, uh, just some things that are happening in the life of our church. Many of you have heard that um, Ray Errett passed away this past Tuesday evening and his funeral will be this coming Tuesday afternoon at one o'clock at Bliley's and so I want to encourage you to be praying for for Miss Irma and her family and then um, Betty Hooker uh, went to be with the Lord yesterday morning after a long battle with um, uh, Alzheimer's and dementia, and so uh, her funeral will be, I think, next Saturday down in Southwest Virginia, and so we'll be praying for her family. Uh, I think it was last year that, that Mr. Roy went to be with the Lord, now now Betty has. And then uh, I want to encourage you to be praying for Beverly Tackett's husband. I got word this morning he's not doing good at all, and so don't know any details about that, just, just what I was told. So we want to pray uh, for those families, and just God would continue to minister to them. And then Miss Dickie Barden had major surgery this week on some um, some cancer on his head, and 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 just so many other uh, things like that going on in the life of our church. So before we really get into the word, we got a couple extra minutes here. Let me just lead us in a time of prayer for these families, and God would minister to them. So would you join me as we pray, Heavenly Father? Um, we know that we serve a God who cares about everything that's happening in our lives. God, we know that you are um, in control of everything that's happening in our lives. Nothing escapes your all-seeing eye. In fact, what we're going to even see this morning in Revelation chapter 1 is this concept of your omniscience, your all-knowing and and all power that is so prevalent in our lives. So we just rejoice and we rest in your sovereignty. and, And God, even as we rest in that, we're praying for your activity in the lives of these that I've mentioned this morning. God, I pray that you would be with uh, Miss Irma and her family as they mourn Ray's passing, a sudden passing, unexpected passing. And so, Lord, as they will lay him to rest this coming week, I pray that you will bless them and encourage them and strengthen them. I pray the same for, for, uh, for Miss Betty's family, God, that you would minister to them. And we pray for those who've had surgery, surgeries recently, and Teresa and, and Dickie and, and, uh, and others. God, would you bless them and be with them during this time of healing and restoration. And God, just Continue to, to, to be gracious to them in every way. We thank you that you care for us. You, you minister to us. And, Lord, you are the one who heals us. And so, God, be that for these families. In Jesus' name, amen. Another thing I wanted to share with you before we really get into the Word this morning is just a quick update on our New Day campaign. It's been one year today since we launched this campaign last year. And this uh, if you're new to our church in the last year, you may w- not know what New Day is because we don't talk about it every single day. It's in the bulletin. We, uh, we itemize the money that's been contributed and, and that goes toward the, the pledges that have been made. But New Day is a capital campaign, three-year capital campaign that's going to enable us to build an office building 
which will enable us to move out of some space behind us, repurpose that space for senior adults so you never have to go up or down a stair unless you choose. And then that will, by a byproduct of that, it will make our downstairs basement area, our fellowship hall, uh, completely children's area for Sundays and Wednesdays. This is going to be dedicated, safe space for children. And so it's going to do a lot of things for us. And then that's phase one. We'll come back at phase two at some point in the future and renovate this worship space and so that's what New Day's about. So let me just give you a quick update on where we're at uh, on this next slide. You'll see a couple things. First of all, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, our site plan was approved uh, about a month or so ago by the county. And, uh, and then our construction plans were finalized uh, a week ago. And this past Monday, we gave those to some contractors to begin the bid process. So we're now officially in the bid process and we've given them a little over 30 business days, so the deadline for those bids to be back is November 1st. And so when that deadline comes and goes, we will look at all those bids. We will then uh, assess them, make a decision, and choose a contractor and move forward with that. And so hopefully sometime in the wintertime, we will have a contractor in place and begin to move toward breaking ground and get this thing on the way. I know you are excited to see that. I'm excited to see that. Our staff is excited to see that. But it's just really, really neat. Uh, I thought it would be a lot faster than this. I thought this time uh, last year that we would be moved in the new building. Things would be progressing on renovation. But uh, uh, man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps, right? The Lord's been directing this in control of it the whole way. And, and so one of the good things it's done for us is you guys have so faithfully given, so wonderfully bought into this vision that because we've been, I guess in our minds, delayed in our design phase, it's allowed us to bring in a whole lot more money than we would have initially uh, done before, before breaking ground. And so that means we don't have to borrow as much on the front end. So God is good in all of this, and we just trust him every step of the way. But that's where we're at. And so just continue to pray, continue to to give, continue to, uh, to, to just trust the Lord through this whole process. And I know that God's going to provide, he's going to bless it, and he's going to use it for his glory. So we're excited about that. So if you got your Bible there, Revelation chapter 1. We're going to continue in our study that we've entitled, Get Ready. As we walk through the book of Revelation, we're seeing, we, we, right off the bat in verse 3, uh, the Lord tells us here that the time is near. Jesus will return. That is what the Revelation is all about. About And so we're going to move on in our study uh, as we come to verses 9 through 20 this morning. Uh, you've probably heard the term first impression, right? That, that, that event when one person first encounters another person or a certain situation, and through that encounter forms a mental image of the person or the situation. Uh, a first impression is often a pivotal moment in shaping a person's opinion as well. Here's how, here's how it goes. You probably walked into a restaurant or something like that. You walked into this restaurant. You began to observe how it was uh, decorated, what the decor was like, what the ambiance, if you will, was like. You noticed the cleanliness or lack thereof. And so in that moment, there within the first few seconds, first few minutes at best, you decided whether or not you're going to come back, right? That's the first impression this morning. All of us sitting in this room at one point or another was a first-time guest to Red Lane Baptist Church, unless you were one of the charter members in 1846. Anybody was a charter member? 
I don't think so. So all of us, at one point or another, was a first-time guest at Red Lane. And so when you came onto the campus, whether it was this morning or it was 50 years ago, you began to assess what you saw. You observed the layout of the parking lot. You observed the greeters and how well or well you were not greeted when you came in. You began to assess the, the worship experience. Everything about your experience here has been used to decide whether or not you would return. And so if this is not your first time here, and you've been here at least twice, at some point during that first visit, you decided, I think I'll give it another shot. And so the church at least made a, a decent first impression in your life. And so first impressions are, are big. Uh, first impressions are based on factors like when we meet somebody, facial shape or vocal inflection or perhaps attractiveness and general emotional state of the person that we're meeting for the very first time. In those early moments, we decide based upon these factors whether or not a relationship is worth pursuing. Sometimes when that, those factors are not up to our liking, we may walk away from meeting a person, perhaps even being in a situation or a locale and, dis and forget who we just met or where we just came from. That's a bad first impression. And so here's a question this morning. How important are these first impressions? Personally, I believe they're very important. I, I believe perception is, is crucial in a lot of the things that we do. I, I believe that first impressions shape our mental image and largely will, will determine whether or not a relationship can and should be formed. As we move to John chapter 1, or Revelation chapter 1 here, I, I'm sure you're wondering this this morning. What in the world is he talking about first impressions for? What we see in Revelation chapter 1 is John having a first impression of Jesus. Uh, I should have said it this way. He's having a first in impression moment with the post-ascended, exalted Lord Jesus Christ. He's met Jesus before. You know that, right? Jesus uh, called him to be one of his disciples. He was one of the inner three. He followed him for three years. He saw him crucified. He saw him buried, and he saw him resurrected. And he was there in Acts chapter 1 when he ascended up into heaven. But this is the first time that he's been able to interact with on a face-to-face -face basis with the Lord Jesus post-ascension. And so this encounter was pivotal in his life. And it did not disappoint. Many times when we meet a person for the very first time and we were anticipating this meeting, we were anticipating meeting someone that we respected, we were let down after that encounter took place. I remember several years ago, a uh, preaching hero of mine uh, was in a, a place that I was going to have an opportunity to be. And so I was excited to meet this, this man that I've listened to and, and, and respected and looked up to for years. And one of those preaching giants in my life. And I remember meeting him for the very first time. This guy was tall. He's brawny. And he stuck out his hand. He was a, 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 an aged man. He'd been in ministry a long time. And so as he stuck his hand out there, and I'm a young guy in my early 20s, and I shook his hand, I kind of was like, what in the world is this? The handshake, there wasn't a weak handshake. You've probably met someone with a, with a noodle for a handshake. It's kind of like a wet noodle. Uh, those are not good. So if you're just some uh, help on handshakes, it needs to be firm, it needs to be strong, it needs to be <laughs> rough. Uh, but as he stuck his hand up there, and it was a firm handshake, but I noticed that his hand was, was soft and pudgy, like I, something I would never would have imagined. And in that moment... 
made a mental note. As a preacher, I know because of what we do, I'm not digging ditches, I'm not drilling holes, I'm not cutting wood or hammering things, I'm not working in a factory, my hands are probably not going to be as rough as some guys, but in that moment, I made a mental note, never have hands like this. Everything else about this man, I want to emulate in my life, I do not want to emulate his soft, pudgy hands. I was a little let down. It was a bad first impression from that standpoint. Still a giant in my life. But I was a little disappointed. This morning as we look at Revelation chapter 1, here in verses 9 through 20, we're going to see John meeting Jesus in his exalted state, and he is not disappointed. Look with me, beginning in verse 9. The Bible says, And I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos. On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This passage here introduces us to the purpose and the content of this book as a whole. Two primary themes are running through this passage. They are the glorified Christ and the church that is under his control as well as his care. We see that pictured in how he holds these seven stars. Jesus here is depicted as the fulfillment of the Old Testament imagery and the apocalyptic hopes that it resonates with. We see here the church is under his control in both a positive and a negative direction. It's under his control in a positive direction from the standpoint of vindication and reward. That God is going to vindicate the damage and the, the, the hurt that's been poured out upon the people of God. And he's going to reward the people of God for their faithfulness. It's a negative direction in the fact that it's warning and speaking of accountability. There's going to come a day when Jesus returns and all things will bring brought to an account. Today as we look at this first theme here of the glorified Christ, I want us to see him as glorious. I want to see us to see him as majestic. I want us to see him as John saw him, beautiful and, and, and awesome in wonder. 
And then next Sunday, we're going to come back. We're going to look at this same passage again. And I want us to look then at it, what I'm calling a comforting scene. Because we're going to see this glorified Christ and how it impacts his church. And how it was a comfort to John, who was here exiled on this island for preaching the gospel and testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. And so this morning, uh, first of all, I want us to see this glorious encounter. John here was privileged to encounter Christ in all of his glory. I'm going to do my best this morning to, to paint the picture that John is, is painting for us here. To, to, to try to break down the imagery that he is depicting for us. It's interesting and, and I believe significant that when John first sees and hears from Jesus, notice what John does not do. When you read the passage with me just a moment ago, did you catch, it, catch this? When John sees Jesus exalted, when he sees his face shining, when he sees his feet on fire, when he sees the word of God coming like a sword out of his mouth, what does John not do in this encounter? He doesn't say a word. He does not speak. It's as if John cannot speak. Verse 17 tells us that he falls down like he's dead. And even though John cannot initially speak in Jesus' presence, he later followed the Lord's command and he wrote down all that he saw and all that he heard. So John's written words here describe for us the impression of this glorious encounter and what it left on the Apostle John. So three things I want you to see this morning as we talk about this glorious encounter. First of all, I want you to see his appearance. I want you to see the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ in this vision. I'm just going to kind of walk through the text here and, and share with you some of the things that John describes as the appearance of Jesus. First of all, he, he tells us that Jesus is dressed in a long robe with a golden sash about his chest. Verse 13, we see this. The description here of his, of his appearance heavily resembles that that is described in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, and again in chapter 10, verse Five, we, we find here in these early verses the semblance of what we might call the prophet, the priest, and the king. For instance, if we were to go back to chapter 1, verse 1, we see that, that John talks about how Jesus is the prophet. He is the one through whom God the Father gave the revelation and Jesus gave it to the angel who gave it to John who gives it to us. He's the prophet. Verse 5, we see that he is ruler of kings on earth. He is the one who is the king of kings. And then what we see here in verse 13 is it talks about his garments. Now he's being presented as the priest. Bears very similar imagery to that which is described for us in Exodus chapter 28, chapter 29, and chapter 39 of the high priest garments. Some might argue that this type of wardrobe, these type of clothing that was worn by Jesus in this passage was also sometimes worn by prophets in the Old Testament, and, and that is true. But the Greek term here that is used is found seven times in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. And in all of those instances, except for one, it speaks of and refers to the garments worn by the high priest. So this long robe and the golden sash signifies to John that Jesus is the high priest. He is our high 
priest. You say, I'm a Christian. I'm a Southern Baptist Christian. What in the world does it mean that Jesus is the high priest? I'm not taking lambs to this offering. I'm not going to the temple to offer sacrifices. Why is it important that Jesus is our high priest? Well, the writer of Hebrews gives us insight into the reason this is important for us. And so Hebrews chapter 9, listen to what the writer says. It'll be on the screen for you. Verse 11, he says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Then chapter 10, verse 11 through 14 says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see this, the the significance of Jesus being the high priest. If we go back to the Old Testament, we see that the sacrificial system set up by God for his people was was there to foreshadow what Jesus would ultimately fulfill for us. The priest would take that sacrificial lamb, he would take those sacrificial calves, and they would slaughter, they would take the blood, and they would sprinkle it. And those would be for the remission of sins for the people of God. But Hebrews reminds us that it was never a permanent thing. It was only a symbolic gesture pointing to what Jesus would ultimately do. Because those high priests every single year had to go into the Holy of Holies, take that sacrificial blood, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat year after year after year. On top of all the other sacrifices they would offer. It was never sufficient in and of itself. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14 tells us, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Today we have a high priest and his name is Jesus. And he is wearing a golden sash about his chest. He is robed in a long robe. And he stands before God the Father on your behalf and on my behalf. And he says, it is finished. He goes on to describe his appearance and he talks about how Jesus' hair was white like wool and snow. George Eldon Ladd suggests that this is not necessarily meant to represent his sinlessness or to represent his holiness, although he is sinless and he is holy, but instead his his hair being described as white speaks of his deity. We discover here that he shares this same feature with God the Father, whose raiment there in Daniel chapter 7 verse 9 is described as being snow and his hair is like the purity of wool. In Daniel, these features belong to what's called or what's described as the ancient of days. It's speaking of God the Father. And so what John is doing here in this revelation as he understands it, as he sees it, is he's describing for us this, that Jesus is not a, just a son of God, the progeny of God. He is God. He is deity. He is fully God. Come in the flesh. Next, he describes his eyes were like a flame of fire. The description here is used in the letter to the church at Thyatira that we'll get to in the next several weeks. In, this, in, in the account, also it's described in chapter 19, verse 12, where it speaks of Jesus as Messiah, Messiah returning and conquering. 
These eyes that were like a flame of fire symbolizes his all-searching omniscience, his, his penetrating eyesight of the one who is sovereign, not just of the seven churches, but of all churches, of all history, of all time. In addition to his eyes of fire, Jesus' feet were like burnished bronze that was refined in a furnace. This is a difficult translation here, but it really, I believe, speaks to his strength and his stability. We can rest in our high priest because he is strong and he is stable. And then Jesus in his hands holds seven stars. Verse 20 informs us who these seven stars represent. They re- represent the seven angels of the seven churches. Picture here signifies his sovereign control and his sovereign care over and for the church. We need to understand this morning that we have a great high priest who is sovereignly securing our future. It doesn't matter what we face as a church. It doesn't matter what we face as believers. God, in his sovereignty, upholds us. This morning, I was reading in my devotion time in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, where it talks about God upholding the people of God in his righteous right hand. Today as a church, we are upheld in his righteous right hand. The face of Jesus shone as brightly as the sun at the noonday. During the time of his incarnation, Jesus was clothed with weakness. Think about what the gospels depict for us. Jesus came and he was born in a manger. The king of glory was born in a manger. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was born into a family of nobodies. He was mistaken and abused, mistreated. He came in human frailty. He came in weakness. He endured the temptations and the testings that's common to all of us as humans. He eventually was succumbed to death. Now the exalted Christ, what we see here is he's ablaze with glory. The term used here speaks of the brilliance or the radiance that surrounded the Lord. As John looked at Jesus in this vision, he saw his face shining. It's almost like there was a glorious glow around him. One day that glorious glow will return. That's who Jesus is. And Finally, we see that from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword represents the irresistible power of divine judgment. The word of Christ will ultimately prevail. In his appearance, Jesus is none other than glorious. And John's encounter here with the exalted Lord did not disappoint. G- John didn't walk away from this encounter thinking, I really expected more from Jesus. I-, I thought I'd see something more glorious than this. No, what he saw at this moment, I believe it even surpassed what he had seen on the Mount of Transfiguration years earlier. Not only did he see a glorious Savior, he also heard from a glorious Savior. So his appearance, secondly, I want you to see his voice. Look with me there in verse 10, and then we're going to pick up at the last part of verse 15. John describes it this way. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice. It was like a trumpet. Verse 15, it was like the roar of many waters. That's the voice of God. The trumpet is an unmistakably clear sound. Anytime you hear a trumpet, you never wonder, what was that sound? No, it's clear and it's distinct. And that's what John heard. The unmistakably clear voice of God. But it was also powerful. And it was mighty, like the the sound of rushing water. If you've ever been to a major waterfall, if you've been in any sort of of setting like that, you, you understand the power of rushing water. I've never been to Niagara Falls, but I've been to other waterfalls. That when you're standing there, you're just like you're standing before the glory of God because it's so mighty and it's so strong. 
That's what John experienced as he heard the voice of God. It was unmistakably clear. It was mighty and powerful. In fact, it's the voice of the Lord is the most powerful thing in all of the world. Psalm 29 speaks to the power of God's voice. I want you to hear what the psalmist says about the voice of the Lord. It's on the screen so you can follow. Beginning in verse 3, reading through verse 9, David says this about the voice of the Lord. He says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. Think about what God's voice does. David describes some of it here for us in verse 3. I believe it's a reference back to creation itself. And so there in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, what does God do to bring creation into existence? He says, let there be, and it was. When there was nothing, when there was nothing to look at, nothing to smell, nothing to think about, there was only God in his infinite wisdom and God in his trinity. And then when there was only him, he spoke into nothing and something came into existence. It was the voice of the Lord that did that. The voice of God would bless creation there in Genesis chapter 1 verse 10. Again in verse 28 and in verse 31. He looks over what he created and he says this is good. This is good. This is very good. He blesses his creation. It was the voice of God that set the parameters for living in creation. God's given us his word to tell us how we're to live, what we're to do, what we're to be like. There in Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 through 17, he tells Adam, this is what you're to do and this is what you're not to do. It's the voice of God that sets the parameters for living. It's also the voice of God that has and, and will judge sin. It, was, it is the voice of God that will judge the sinner and it is the voice of God that will judge Satan. We're going to see that unfold here in the book of Revelation, but it already has taken place back in Genesis chapter 3 when God came there after Adam and Eve ate of that forbidden tree. He is the one with his voice speaks judgment and curse upon man and Satan. And when Christ returns, he will vanquish his enemies with just a word. I mean, think about that. When we talk about warfare, when we begin to think about the parameters and, and the repercussions of what war would look like for us. I mean, we seems like we're always in our American, in this world today, not just in America, in this world today, we're always thinking about the possibility of war with all these different things happening around the globe. And, and so when we think of warfare, we immediately think, do we have more planes than they do? Do we more have more rockets than they do? Are our nuclear weapons bigger and better and badder than the other person's? And so we think in those parameters, how is our military going to size up against our enemy's military? But when Jesus comes, he's not going to come thinking, I hope my military is better than the, than the, the enemies and the, the, the military of Satan himself. No, he says, I'm going to Speak a word, and it's going to be over. Graciously, we see that it's the voice of God that calls out and draws sinners to find hope and forgiveness in him himself. 
It's wonderful how Genesis early there in the first three chapters lays out everything that we're going to see the rest of the book. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all summed up there in, in a microcosm in these first three chapters. Because when God comes to the garden, what does he do? He calls out to Adam. He doesn't come and do something. He doesn't come and, and, and create something. What does he do? He comes and he speaks, Adam, where are you? Adam, come to me. It's an invitation. It's the voice of God that invites us into relationship with him. And so when John sees this revelation here, when he sees this picture of who Jesus is, he sees his appearance and he hears his voice. And his voice always says, come unto me. Come unto me. John saw Jesus. John heard Jesus. And thirdly, I want you to see here that John experienced Jesus. He sees his presence. He experiences his presence. John experienced the presence of Jesus in this vision. Perhaps one of the most comforting verses in all of the Bible is found in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, where God says to his people, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. I believe that some of the greatest and most tender and most precious words that God's ever spoken over us as his people is this. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. So many times we fear that we're going to be forsaken because so many people forsake us. But God never forsakes his people. And here John is confronted with the presence of almighty God. He's confronted with the glorious, resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus here personifies himself as being present among. Who's he present among? The seven churches. Verse 13. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. I want you to know this morning that what we see in this revelation is that Jesus is present with us. He's present among the seven churches. It's very reminiscent of what we've already seen in Daniel chapter 3. If you know the story of the Bible, all the way back in the book of Daniel... King Nebuchadnezzar kind of got a big head, and he began to say, you need to worship me. He builds a big, a, a big pillar, and if you didn't bow down to worship, and you got thrown into the furnace. Well, three particular men, uh, protégés or colleagues with Daniel himself, said, we will not bow and worship the king. We will bow and worship the God of Israel and him alone. And so Nebuchadnezzar had to throw them into the furnace, and he threw them in there. Heated it up seven times. It was so hot that the men who threw them into the furnace immediately died from the heat. But they survived. In fact, as you read the story there, you see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their Babylonian names that were given to them, stood up in that furnace, walked around in that furnace, and, and the king looked in there and he saw a fourth individual. And it describes him as the, he's looked like the son of man. He looked like a God himself. I believe it was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ standing in their midst, present with them in their affliction. And today... Just as John saw here in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus stands with his church in all of its challenges. Jesus is also pictured as being before the believers, not just collectively with the church. I believe it also speaks to the, to the fact that Jesus is with us individually as well as collectively. In verse 17, we see that when John saw this revelation, when he saw this vision of who Jesus is, what does he do? He immediately falls to the feet of Jesus as if he were dead. Jesus' presence is in the church collectively, but it's also in the life of the individual believer. Jesus was present with John here. 
We see this same thing all throughout the, the Gospels, all throughout the, the, the New Testament and the story of the church. I think of the woman with the blood condition in Matthew chapter 9 where Jesus is walking through the crowds. The woman reached out in her last hope to get some healing in her life, touches the hem of his garment, and Jesus immediately asks the question, who touched me? The disciples are like, what do you mean who touched you? There's hundreds of people around you. Everybody's touching you. And he says, no, I felt power go out from me. Jesus was present in this woman's life. Matthew chapter 8, we see Jesus touching the leper. A person that no one in that culture would have touched, probably no one in our culture would have touched, outside of a physician himself or herself. But Jesus touches these people. He's present in their lives. Jesus also is the one who forgave the thief on the cross. You remember there in Luke chapter 23 when Jesus is interacting and the thief said there, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise today. He's present with him in his life. The testimony of scripture makes it abundantly clear that this is who our Lord Jesus is. Acts chapter 12, we may think, well, maybe this is only for unbelievers. No, it's true for the church as well. When Peter is in prison in Acts chapter 12, who is the one who dispatches the angel to come and release him from prison? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He was present with him in his struggles. And today he's present with us in our struggles. If we know him as Lord and Savior, we can take it to the bank. Jesus is present in our life individually. He's present with us corporately as a church. And along with that comes the favor of God. Look there at the latter part of verse 17. Jesus has fallen at the feet of Jesus as though he is dead. I mean, just the mere sight of the glory of God, he falls out as if he's dead. Jesus reaches out with his righteous right hand and he lays it on John. You say, what's the big deal about that? The right hand in the Bible always speaks of favor. The favor of God rested upon John here. The right hand in Scripture is often uh, used in a commissioning connotation. It, it invokes and, and it passes on authority. It speaks of power. When Jesus reached out his hand and touched John, he's doing those same things. He's commissioning. He's passing authority. He's giving a power. He's blessing him and giving him favor in his life. John here is collapsing before Jesus, but he lays his right hand of favor upon him. It's a beautiful picture of grace and mercy. John was a sinner. I mean, think about who John is. John is no different than you and I. John is not some special person. John was a fisherman. He probably used bad language. He probably was a little uh, shady in some of his business deals. He's just like you and I. He probably talked bad to his mom and dad. He probably did bad things. He might have had bad thoughts, said bad things. He's just like you and I. He had no business being in the presence of Jesus. But Jesus calls him to himself just like he does you and I. And in this glorious, exalted moment, he reaches out his hand in favor and touches John. If it were not for the grace of God, John would have never experienced the presence of Jesus. He did not deserve it. But Jesus is the one who invited him into his presence. And he's the one who blessed him and gave him favor. John saw Jesus. John heard from Jesus. And John experienced the gracious presence of Jesus. First impressions. I believe that uh, we don't know how much longer he lived after he wrote the book of John. We don't have any of those stories, just some legends here and there. But I've got to believe that the impression that he had 
of the exalted Christ left a lasting mark upon his life. I got to believe that for the rest of his days, he always remembered this moment when he saw Jesus in his glory. And oh, how it would have changed him. It left that mark upon his life. His glorious appearance, his powerful voice, his gracious presence would never be forgotten in John's life. And I believe John recalled them as he greeted the seven churches with praise and appeal. I believe that when John, the passage we looked at last week, when he's writing and beginning this letter to these churches, explaining all that Jesus has revealed to him, in his mind, he's reflecting on, he's thinking about, he's reminiscing his encounter with this glorious, gracious, good, wonderful Savior. And there was absolutely no disappointment. There was no wonder about God. There was no hesitance, 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 whatever that word is. He was not hesitant to follow him. I am from Arkansas. And we don't really speak very well over there sometimes. Hesitancy. My Arkansas people in the front row, amen that. That's For John, I believe there was a clear, calm assurance in the greatness of God. What about you this morning? Is there a calm, clear assurance of the greatness of God in your life? That without a shadow of doubt, you know that God loves you. Without a shadow of doubt, you know that He has your best in mind. Without a shadow of doubt, you know that He can do anything and everything in your life. Is there any doubt in your life about Him caring for you? If not, why don't we trust Him more? Why don't we yield more fully to him? Why do we hold on and try to do things our own way? John here has this glorious encounter with the risen, exalted Christ, and it forever changed him. A question for us this morning, is the exalted, resurrected, glorious Jesus Christ forever changing us day by day? Or tomorrow morning, will we get up and it will be business as usual? We'll go to work and we'll do the same old thing. We'll have the same problems. We'll, we'll say the same words. We'll get frustrated in the same way. We'll get angry. We'll get mad. We'll get frustrated with our kids. It'll just be business as usual. It doesn't have to be that way. We can catch a glimpse of God in such a way that it radically alters who we are and how we live. So this morning, the question is, have you encountered Jesus like this? This morning, some of you, you've never encountered him at all. You may be religious. You may, know, be, you may be able to speak the religious language. You may understand what we do in church. But for whatever reason, you may have never come into relationship with Jesus. You've never experienced forgiveness and a changed life. And so this morning, the thing you need more than anything else is salvation. It's not to be baptized. It's not church membership. It's not I need to try harder. It's not I need to start a devotional life. It's not I need to get some friends to pray over me and pray for me. No, you need a fresh new encounter with Jesus because your life's never been changed. Most of us in this room, though, we know Jesus. We've been walking with Jesus. In fact, we've been walking with Jesus so long, it's become old hat to us. We've lost our first love. It's amazing how the letters to the seven churches, one of those is going to mention that very thing. That the church at Ephesus, Jesus is going to say to them, you have left your first love. You've forgotten me. 
you started so strong. You, you had such passion and zeal. You were committed to the right things. But somehow, in some way, along the way, you got comfortable with all of that. And, and now it's just like you're just going through religious motions. You're doing the right things. You look good on the outside. But for whatever reason, you just, there's no love. It's just religious. Is that where you're at this morning? You need a fresh touch of the glory of God in your life. This morning, do you need to be changed by the power of God? Do you need Him to forgive you of all of your sins? Do you need to come into a relationship with Him for the first time in your life? There really is no second time in your life. We need to get that understood. You only get saved once. But sometimes when we are saved, we can, we can become so comfortable with it that we forget its glory. The good news the Bible has for us this morning, God loves you. Man, he loves you. I hope you see that this morning in this text. I hope you see how much he loves you. That the king of all kings, the one who spoke creation into existence, the one who would literally put himself on a cross and, and, and subject himself to being uh, separated from God the Father himself as he bore your sins, he loves you. The only reason he would do that is because he loves you. God gives us good news in his words, that you are designed by him, loved by him, cared for by him. God wants to be in relationship with you, but the bad news is, is that all of us are sinners. All of us have sin. That sin is brokenness. It's separated us. We are without hope. We need a Savior. We need someone to step in our place. We need the high priest we read about in Hebrews earlier. Someone who would take that sacrifice of all sacrifices and put it on the offering of God the Father and say, Father, this is for them and it is enough. Jesus did that for you and I. You can't do it. I can't do it. You can come to me and say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me. Pastor, I'm in a mess. Pastor, my life's a wreck. And I will pray for you. I will encourage you. I will help you as much as I can. But I can't crawl upon a cross and die for you because I'm a sinner just like you. That's the bad news. That's the good news. The best news is Jesus is our hope. He's the one who paid the price. He's the one who substituted himself in our place so that we can be forgiven of all sin, past, present, and future. Can I get a glory for the future sins that will be committed one day by you and I that are already forgiven in Jesus? Does it give you a license today to go out and just say, all right, I got the great credit card. Let's swipe it. No, that's not what we're talking about here. Man, to think about my sins have been paid for, past, present, and future. That's the best news of all. I can't earn my way to heaven, but Jesus has paid my way to heaven. This morning, do you know him? Are you walking with him? Are you being changed by him? Father, this morning we love you, and we are so grateful for the good news that we have seen this morning in this passage. We thank you that you are our high priest. We thank you that you are our savior. We thank you that your blood was shed for our sins. The price was paid and it was paid in full. This morning we stand simply as recipients of your love and your grace and your goodness. God, I pray for that person, man, woman, perhaps child, teenager this morning that's sitting in this room and today the greatest need in their life is a relationship with Jesus. Lord, I pray for boldness to be given them, courage to be given them this morning. Lord, I pray that this is the moment as we open up our time of response that they would be uh, just willing and able to come forward and say, I want to talk with someone about giving my life to Jesus. Lord, I pray for Christians all across this room. God, so many of us 
just become complacent in our faith. I pray this morning in some way we've been able to just kind of take the veil off our eyes and peer into the glory of God. Fresh and anew. We see you majestic and holy, righteous and true. this beautiful imagery that John sees and writes down for us. Your invitation is not lost. When you came to John and you allowed him to peek in, you allowed it to be written down and presented to us today so that we can peek in. It's an invitation this morning. God, help us as Christians to understand that you love us so much that you're constantly calling to us. God, help us to respond in faithfulness and repentance and holiness. Change our lives. Help us to live lives that are changed for a watching world all around us. Our families, our neighbors, our colleagues, our classmates, community members. Help us to live looking at the glory of Almighty God. So in this time of response, Lord, open our hearts and open our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet.